This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We continue our sermon series on Micah. And in Micah chapter 1, uh, we saw that we should have sorrow for our covenantal unfaithfulness and that Jesus not only teaches us how to have that sorrow, but actually expresses that sorrow for us by willingly going to the cross on our behalf. In chapter 2, we saw the depth of our own deception, our own self-deception. We can convince ourselves that we're doing right, um, even when we are very much disagreeing with God's word. As sheep, we needed a good shepherd to guide us, to fight for us, to bring us into good and pleasant pasture, and Jesus has done that. In chapter 3, we're going to address a different question that I think all of us have asked at some point in our lives. Does God always hear my prayers? Does God always hear my prayers? I think, you know, we want run through and we say, of course, of course he does. But we have kind of this existential doubt that lives beneath it. And we say, does he really? And then I wonder when we read through our Bibles and we read Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15, you could read this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In Malachi 2, it says this. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And unless you think this is just in the Old Testament prophets, what about Jesus in Matthew 5 and Luke 20 where he denounces how the Pharisees pray because they pray to be seen by men. He says that their prayers will not be heard because they've already received that which they were looking for the praise of men and not God. So today we're going to explore what might cause our prayers to not be heard by God. And Micah chapter 3 is going to teach us or give us a couple of examples, but we're also going to learn how our prayers might always be heard by God. So if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disregarded and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel 
his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion, excuse me, with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're asking this question about whether or not the Lord always hears our prayers. And it is a good reminder, uh, as I have every time, to, to say that Micah is writing to God's people. Uh, these people who, who would have identified themselves as in a relationship with their God, they probably would have recognized that they're not perfect, um, but nevertheless, they would have said that uh, they are the ones in covenantal relationship. They have a, a way to make sacrifices and a way to be right with their God. <clears throat> and yet in verses 4 and verse 7, Micah can say that though they cry to the Lord, he will not answer them. And they shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Micah explains why, and he's going to give us two examples of, of things that might prevent our prayers from being heard. And the first one is injustice. If you look at verse 1, is it not for you to know justice? Verse 2, you who hate the good and love evil. We've talked about this already. Actually, both of these examples that Micah will give us, we've already seen Micah talk about in chapters 1 and 2. But the injustice that plagued God's people, as a reminder, um, was, was that it seems that wealthy land barons were taking advantage of socio-political trends uh, to deprive the poor of their land uh, and their way to work. This wasn't simply playing by fair market prices, um, allowing people a way out of their debts, maybe by, by liquidating their assets. This was taking advantage of war and drought to line the pockets of a few at the expense of many. But it wasn't simply the fault of the few. Although uh, Micah talks to uh, the southern kingdom heads, we know that the entire nation gets carried out into exile in just a few hundred years. Everybody receives this judgment. Not just the few who seem to be taking advantage. You know, previously in Israel's history, when one family sinned, uh, the Lord caused, like, the earth to open up and swallow just that one family. And I don't know if you remember that story in the Old Testament. But, like, God can judge just one family if he wants to. There's something particular about the injustice happening in Micah that pollutes the whole nation, that pollutes the community. In Micah's day, the culpability, the responsibility cannot just be pinned on a few, but lies with the whole nation who buys into it. And in case we think that we are isolated from similar sorts of injustice, um, there's a movie that helps kind of summarize our way of life, a 1987 movie uh, called Wall Street with Michael Douglas. And in it, Michael Douglas has this mini monologue. And he says, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Telgard paper, who the story kind of follows, 
but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Total free market capitalism, unrestrained by morals and ethics, will be run by greed and total injustice. The Champlain condo tower that fell in Surfside, Florida in June of this year provides a stinging example of injustice that was perpetuated by an entire culture and region across decades. Nathan Ryberg developed uh, this condominium tower. The permits appear to be made under some shady business dealings, possibly bribing city council members. He was not only the developer, but also the general contractor. So if he wanted to save money, he could. He'd just say, don't use that material, use the other one. There was no one to push back on him. The city council members of Surfside in the 1970s and 80s had to be elected, but they were volunteer positions, sort of. They worked for $1 a year. It is clear that in Surfside, they did not have the capacity or resources to fight off the drug money that was flooding into the Miami area at the time in an effort to launder this, mo this money. The city council also further approved a penthouse addition, so a 13th story to a 12-story building, even though their city code restricted buildings to be only 12 stories tall. Now, money laundering wasn't strictly illegal until the Money Laundering Act of 1986. Grand juries throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s would find that Miami-Dade building officials had been corrupted and shortcuts had been taken across many condominium developments. The engineer that designed the building had a history of of designing buildings without the proper rebar and support structures. The building codes themselves at the time may have been insufficient, but it seems clear today that even according to the building codes of the time, the engineer's design failed to meet them. But in case you think this was all just in the 70s and 80s, we can fast forward to our time today, where in 2018, a Surfside City official would come to the condo meeting and despite evidence to the contrary, declare to the residents and investors that the building was in fact perfectly safe. It seems that someone or a group of someones across decades were very much interested in greed. No one wanted to be stuck on the hook for $15 million in repairs. The condo association was open to opinion shopping, not only getting the advice of an independent agency um, who identified the needed repairs, uh, but also willing to bring in an official that was willing to side with another viewpoint. Maybe this wasn't simply a nefarious group, one single nefarious group or one uh, um, small group of people, but a collective desire of all of those invested to not invest anymore for their own protection or protection of their neighbors in order to save a buck. This has nothing to say of the countless realtors coming in and out of Champlain Towers throughout the years who used loopholes to not disclose the necessary repairs that the building may have needed to new investors or new residents in order that everyone's property values might be protected, including the tax revenues of Surfside, Florida. Greed is good, greed is right. Greed works. A decades-long story of collective greed and culture blindness led to a partial collapse of Champlain Tower South, 1.25 a.m. on June 24th, 2021, where 98 people lost their lives.
I doubt many of us could say uh, that we have willfully been led and brought into such schemes, but the sheer breadth of time and number of people involved in the Champlain Towers reminds me that I am sure that I am culpable somewhere. It makes me think of the times that I have neglected and walked past those things that I should have stepped into otherwise. In school, when I myself was afraid of being picked on, and so I passed by the other student being bullied. This has happened time and time again throughout schools and workplaces, just walking down the street where I have turned the other way. Individual acts of justice might create just communities. Individual acts of injustice create societies of injustice. Societies of injustice tend to leave no one innocent of the crime of injustice. They just lead to different degrees of culpability. This was certainly true for Micah's audience. As I said, they were all about to go into exile. Remember when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham is there uh, worried for his cousin. And he pleads with God and he says, what if 50 righteous people are found there? 50 righteous would you still destroy the city? God says, no, I wouldn't. And Abraham, you know, pleads again. He goes, okay, what about 45? God says, no. What about 40? God's like, no, I still won't destroy it. 30, 20, 10. God still says no. But Abraham still watched the city get destroyed. There was no one righteous. Now, if you know something about the rest of that story, Abraham was worried about his cousin. Uh, God does send some angels to help deliver his cousin, um, and they mostly make it. Um, but the point still stands that God's righteousness is at a fundamentally different degree than what we think righteousness is. And the injustice that was being perpetuated in Micah's day and the injustice uh, that we participate in to varying degrees and levels is profound. And again, if I can just remind you of what I said in a, another sermon, this, this depth of profundity of, of how um, broken we are should drive us to the cross further. We don't just need a little bit of Jesus. We need a lot of Jesus. The first thing that might stop our prayers from being heard is the injustice that we perpetuate. The second example of something that might prevent our prayers from being heard is our presumptive Religion. Now we saw this again in chapter 2 as well. In verses 5 through 8, the prophets of the northern kingdom of our passage here, verses 5 through 8 of, of chapter 3, um, the prophets uh, of the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, far from denouncing the injustice above, like, like Micah was going to do a little bit later, they declared peace. They cried peace when they were fed. And the idea here being that they could be bribed. Whoever came with the best tithe and offering, they would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. And if they didn't come with enough, then it was judgment and war. We talked about this some last week, and Micah saw fit to repeat it to his audience, so I'll find it fit to repeat it to you. The collective self-deception, this is from our sermon last week, our collective self-deception of our wealth is that there will always be people who will twist the scriptures to make it say what we want it to say. Because we pay the piper 
to play the tune. If we don't like what they say, we can just leave and move on. This sort of presumptive religion blinds us, and we talked about that some last week. What this means is that we will find preachers and and pastors uh, that will not challenge us to our covetousness, theft, or oppression, and who will not call us back to covenantal faithfulness. Because for us, these preachers and pastors um, reinforce week after week that God is for us, whatever it is that you might be doing. Divorced maybe from the injustice, covetousness, and greed that you may be attached to. That God prioritizes our happiness and comfort over his commands. That God doesn't take sin seriously. And that in an effort to make the love of God large, they reduce the need and demand of the sacrifice on our behalf. And this is why I say we don't just need a little bit of Jesus. We need a lot of Jesus. God loves you. But never forget how costly that love was. His love is not light and frivolous, but cost the sacrifice of his own son. Ultimately, these prophets in Micah's day, who at one point had some aptitude to to discern the will of God and some merit to declare it to others, would ultimately have that power stripped away. They would have night instead of vision, darkness without divination. The sun would go down and their profession would be disgraced. Ultimately, they would cover their own lips because like the unjust before them, their participation in this system would receive no answer from God when they cried out. I wonder how many preachers and prophets of our day have their aptitude and gifts stripped from them because they twist the word of God to encourage the very opposite of what it says. I wonder how easy it is for me to fall into that same trap. To be willingly blinded because it's so much easier to cry peace, peace than to talk to people about their sin. It's so much easier for us to dwell, think about, and pray on the love of God, which is, of course, important, than it is to reflect on those ways that we have done grave damage to our relationship with God. Throughout 9 through 12, Micah is summarizing his attack against the unjust and these religious presumptive people. These heads of Jacob in verses um, 1 are the same as they are in verse 9. Um, And the same of the false prophets of verse 5 are the same in verse 11. But through these verses of 9 through 12, as he's kind of summarizing these two different examples, and he's saying what their problem really is, uh, you'll see that Micah references Zion and Jerusalem and their construction a lot. Um, how they were built, uh, whether the paths were straight, uh, whether there was blood there, um, and then also what the destruction is going to come. You see, it appears that people in Micah's audience trusted in God's power, but not in God himself. You see, the temple of God was a physical structure, and the one that Solomon built was beautiful. And it says when they leaned on it, you could tell that their, their rest was actually that the temple is here, This is where God lives. 
He can't ever leave. Of course, we might make him angry. Of course, we're not quite perfect. But this is God's house. God is with us. The temple of the living God was built in their midst, but it was built with blood. In Jerusalem, there was a path to God's dwelling place, but it was crooked and obstructed. These priests taught for a bribe. Prophets gave you a favorable, favorable vision for a price. You can imagine them physically leaning on the building and saying, nothing can happen to us. God loves us, see? This temple is here. This temple is where God's presence resided, where his spirit rested. I think we're just as presumptive in our religion. I think it can be summarized in our trust in God's power and not in God himself. You can hear a lot of people talking about God's love and then being confused by passages of judgment, almost unwilling to hear them, uh, maybe willing to section them out as the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New, but God never changes. God is the same forever and for always. We believe that our prayers will be heard because that's just who God is. Of course, I can think of all the oversimplified things that we do, like all of those uh, little memes that are shared and like that light up on Facebook or through WhatsApp or whatever. People are saying, God loves you, good morning. Of course we wanna hear good news. I myself have, have struggled with depression and anxiety, and in those moments of darkness, what do you want? You just want good news. But even then, in that moment, you can understand that those good news cliche things are baseless. They're kind of um, water, or sand that just passes through your fingers. It's missing something substantial. I think we can do this with the way that we sing our worship songs. Even some of the songs that we sang today, I think can be sung by some of us to reinforce an idea that God's love for us was cheap. It's just who he is. When we sing you know, these, these worship songs we sing because um, what, what overflows our hearts and joy comes out. So, of course, we sing about the promises of God. You know, it's hard for us to sing about God's judgment. Um, so I understand why we sing about God's promises to them. That, that makes sense. Um, but when we sing about this exclusively, uh, divorced from any sort of context wherein we are challenged um, by why our relationship with God is the way that it is, why the promises have to be made in the first place, we miss something substantial about what Christianity is. We must face the reality that our sin killed Jesus Christ. When we receive these watered-down messages, we're tempted to presume that we just aren't that bad. We just need help getting by. That God's love wasn't costly. Micah's audience presumed that the Spirit of the Lord lived in the building and nothing could change that. Our presumption is that our God has a father-like love and that we can have it without looking at the cross that often. Micah's prophecy would be that this presumptive religion that they had in their physical building would be torn down brick by brick. It would become a heap on top of Jerusalem. It would be a field and a wooded height. 
And shortly after Micah's time, it would happen. The temple would be ripped down brick by brick. A couple hundred years after that, it would be rebuilt. However, in the rebuilding of this temple, um, it was pathetic. Like compared to Solomon's temple, when they went back to go rebuild it after exile, it was like a quarter of what it should have been. So much so that when people remembered the stories and then they finally traveled all the way back from exile to go see the temple that they heard was built, they saw it and they wept. Not out of joy, but out of sorrow because of what was lost. They longed for the day when it would be perfected and the glory of the Lord would dwell once again. And you know what? Jesus would look on the same temple and weep. He would weep for Jerusalem. He would prophesy against it. He would say that the temple would be born, uh, torn down and that in three days later it would be built back up. You know, in fact, when Jesus was on trial, one of the most stinging evidences against him was that he said that the temple would be torn down. And it struck at the vitals of their presumptive religion. The Jews leaned on the temple, assuming that the spirit of justice and might that Micah had talked about in our passage would always be found there. They thought that it would come there, that salvation would be found there, but that spirit had abandoned that temple long ago because of the blood on their hands, the injustice done among them. And what's key for us to understand is that in our presumptive religion, we have done the same thing. Wherever we think the Spirit of God is going to reside, whatever man-made structures we have given it, will fail. Now, the Spirit had abandoned this temple long ago, but it had descended upon another person. And in him, the New Testament says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, a spirit of righteousness and truth. He would give sight to the blind and heal the sick. He would give justice to the justiceless. He would be the king that would defend and provide. Upon him, Jesus Christ, the spirit would descend and never depart because upon him there was no crime of injustice. There was no blood on his hands. The old temple is where the people confess their sins and restore their relationship with God, but the new temple, the sacrifice would have already been made. And the old temple was bound to a place and a specific people, and the new temple, it would reach all peoples in all places. The old temple was still, still separated God from his people with a curtain, a big, thick curtain, and the new temple would rip that curtain in two, and people would see God face to face. This new temple where God's spirit rests is where we can have the utmost confidence that God is actually there and he actually hears our prayers because it is God himself. This new temple's cornerstone, the stone that determines what the building's purpose is, is Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 Peter 2, it says this, as you come to him, as Christians come to him, this Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, Christians, are like living stones. And you're being built into a spiritual house, 
a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How can we be sure that God hears our prayers? By offering them in this new temple. Not through the old temple of presumption, but by having to pass through the blood and suffering of Jesus Christ himself, to look him dead in the face, to see the wounds in his side and the holes in his hands and say, you have made the way. If you actually come to Jesus himself as he describes himself, as who he says that he is, not some temple of Jesus of your own construction, but who Jesus says that he is, you will find that you can no longer be presumptive. You'll find that you'll be able to see that sin that was so long laying hidden within you, that injustice that you were unaware of, how deep sin really went and just how much Jesus you actually needed. This relationship with Jesus, this dependence upon him, his work and his love for us allows us to know that our prayers are actually heard because it's God himself. And in case we're afraid that we would come to Jesus and he'd be full of anger and wrath, I'd imagine, I would like you to, to, to remember what he said when he was up on the cross, after having been beaten, crowned with thorns, and dying. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you know whose prayer was heard in that moment? Jesus's. The one who had never done any injustice, the one who had never presumed in that moment, he forgave us. The temple was built with his blood. The path was cleared and it was straight and there was no obstructions laying in the way. He said, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you peace. I have prepared it before you. I am your good shepherd. I am the king that breaks through your enemies. And when we come we don't find animosity from God. We don't see him hiding his face from us. But instead, what we see is a table set before us. A table that says, I have made peace with God. Come, have dinner with me. <laughs> Pass this time with me. I'm delighted to see you. And you know, when Jesus made this table, uh, he, he did it on Passover. Um, and again, it was associated with the temple, uh, and it was this time where uh, Israel's sins were going to be forgiven, and someone was going to pay for it. And this lamb was going to be slaughtered, and, and blood was going to be painted on the doorposts. And it was going to protect the homes. And on this night was the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. It's my blood. Take and drink. I provide you protection. Brothers and sisters, this is a tangible sign of God's covenantal promises for his covenantal people. It is for those who hear the words of Micah and are cut to the heart. It is for those who hear Jesus proclaiming, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and they know that they're the ones that need the forgiveness, who cast themselves upon the cornerstone, who know that they need Jesus, and not just a little bit, but a lot. They need him every moment of every day. And by his mercy in their lives, they try to live in subjection to his rule. For those who are united to this Jesus, who understands what it means to pass through his body and his blood, I'd invite you to come take and eat. For those of you who aren't sure where you stand in relation to this Jesus, who aren't sure about these promises, who aren't sure about his ability to defeat death, aren't sure about whether or not his, his promises are for you, aren't sure whether or not you need that much Jesus, I'd invite you to refrain from this part of our service. You can always come back another day. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, But this is for those who, who, with their outward actions, are willing to proclaim something that they can identify as an inward reality. If you're not sure of that inward reality, don't make it an outward action. In a moment, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we can come down these center two aisles uh, and go to these two stations over here on my right and my left. Uh, And there you can receive the bread and the wine. We also have a gluten-free option. Uh, Just ask your server about that. The server will pass you the bread. Uh, And then the uh, wine is red, and we also have clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the spiritual food that nourishes and reminds us that in you, in the temple of your very body, that you have made a sacrifice in your body and your blood, and through the sacrifice we have peace, so much peace that we can eat at the table of the Lord, that we can pray and our prayers are heard because you're the one listening. Thank you that we no longer have to presume upon your kindness, but we have you yourself standing, inviting, and serving us. Father, I ask that even this bread and this wine this morning remind us that we have peace with God as we eat at this table. And I thank you for this. In Jesus' name.